0: My name is Dimitri Golovin and I am a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Indiana University. As an ICU doctor, much of what I do is provide life support to critically ill patients so that they can recover from their illness. Until recently, survival has been the yardstick by which critical care doctors measure their work. But lately, we've come to understand that maybe that's not enough. I'm here with Dr. Babur Khan, the founder of the Eskenazi Health Critical Care Recovery Center and Dr. Praveen Mather, retired faculty from the Indiana University Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care. Dr. Mather has had a long and illustrious career and can share many stories of caring for critically ill patients, as well as stories of how he pioneered many of the interventional bronchoscopy techniques that we commonly use in practice. But that's not the story that he's here to share with us today. Today, he's here to share a very personal story that has profoundly impacted his life. But like many other stories, has had profound impact on how critical care doctors take care of their patients. This is a story about survival, and about what happens next.
1: I was on my way back from Italy, and um, in in the plane, I felt. Uh, shaky and warm and sweaty and kept asking the air hostess to turn the temperature on uh, to be higher and um, finally once I got home I felt okay I felt fine for the next one or two days and then I went to the emergency room uh, because I was still having a lot of fever and diarrhea and uh, at IU North uh, the last thing I remember was arguing with the nurse about my saturations which were low and after that I really don't remember much of what uh, took place but the story I was given was um, that on my CAT scan I had quite a few infiltrates and my Oxygen level was low. Somewhere along the way, uh, that day I got intubated. But prior to reaching, the in the emergency room, prior to all of this happening, I sent two emails. One to the president of the ECCP saying I was not coming for their meeting, which I was supposed to go that day. The second email I sent to Homer Twig, our division director, saying, I'm going to the ER, and if I'm very sick, make sure I get transferred downtown. And after that, after I got intubated, I really don't remember or much.
0: At this point, Dr. Khan had been a fellow at Indiana University for several years and developed a close professional and personal relationship with Dr. Mather. He remembers his day well.
2: I was, um, I was in the middle of my fellowship when Dr. Mather was admitted to the hospital. Prior to that, I can say that um, Dr. Mather taught me how to perform bronchoscopies. My first bronch was uh, performed with Dr. Mather and I was told how to hold the bronchoscope correctly and do the procedures. Uh, on top of that, uh, majority of my rotations, I had Dr. Mather as my attending. So, so the initial foundation of my pulmonary critical care carrier and all the basic knowledge in pulmonary critical care medicine, I I learned from Dr. Mather. And that was not all through work, but there was a lot of personal time involved with that. So I had a very deep uh, personal relationship with Dr. Mather too, with a lot of respect for him, not only as a faculty, but also as a person who you can look up to. It was interesting. I have not spoken to anyone, actually not even to Dr. Mather about it, that when I heard about him getting admitted to IU, and in a condition that he was in, um, being in the same field and knowing what the outcomes could be, it was, it was extremely tough to deal with that news. I actually sat down and I did not have anybody next to me, so I picked up my phone and I called my wife, and I talked to her about this just to, to get my bearings right at that time. Um, so yeah, it, it hit me hard. Um, I was very much concerned about the recovery process and actually at that time before the recovery process I was concerned about the survival. And the other thing that we we never take into consideration as physicians is we think that we are invincible as physicians while especially when we take care of people in the ICU. So having someone so close to us get admitted to the ICU and going through the same process um, um, opened the eyes to something that I have never thought about before that.
0: Now, even with an ICU, there is a range of illness, and all doctors know what it means when they're told of a sick patient in the unit. Dr. Mather became that patient.
1: At IU, I was found to have uh, ARDS and on a vent, them having difficulty ventilating me, and uh, I was then paralyzed. I also had a bronchoscopy done and was found to have high eosinophils, and so I was put on high-dose steroids. Somewhere along the line, kidneys got affected by either contrast or the illness, and therefore I was on dialysis, CVVH and that dialysis till the kidneys finally uh, recovered. Uh, somewhere along the way, there was a large retroperitoneal bleed, which I was told required about 15 or 20 units of blood. Subsequently, after all of that settled down, I had a tracheostomy done and then um, essentially was transferred to an LTEC where I basically was there for about less than a week and was transferred back because I had more evidence of sepsis. Once I was back at University Hospital, they attempted to uh, uh, put a needle in this large hematoma in the belly and were really not successful in draining that. And then eventually the urologist went in with Da Vinci and removed most of the blood clot and uh, also at the same time the general surgeons removed the gallbladder. After that, things sort of basically somewhat improved. So once uh, the retroperitoneal bleed was fixed and uh, uh, the gallbladder was removed, things improved. There was no more fevers but I went through all the complications of usual ICU care, such as uh, urea tract infection, uh, C. diff, uh, all those normal ICU things that happen.
0: Dr. Mather was fortunate to survive this, but the medical details of his illness are all things that are deeply familiar to us as critical care doctors. What made Dr. Mather's case special is that it opened our eyes to the impact that the critical illness has on the patient and family
2: to see someone who was one of the sharpest faculty we have in in our primary critical care department had to struggle in responding to simple things, Um, again, puts this back that that there are certain things that we don't think about and that can still happen to us. I was able to see uh, his recovery um, from a different perspective compared to his own um, personal experience. I was um, able to also notice his family involvement, the involvement of his wife, and and especially the involvement of his daughter. How much family involvement is required in the recovery process of the patient, and how much they have to give up from their uh, their own lives, a chunk of their lives, in order to help the ICU survivor uh, recover. Uh, and I would let Dr. Um, Mather obviously come into that. But seeing his daughter, um, who was not in Indiana at that time, and had to stay here to navigate the complex healthcare system and the transitions of care that would happen once uh, a patient gets discharged from the ICU. And again, Dr. Mather being, um, being in a unique situation that having himself a physician and an educated family, it still took a lot of effort from everyone to go through this complex multidisciplinary recoveries, talking to different specialties and bringing them together so they can work on the common goal of having the ICU survivor get back to their normal functioning. The amount of effort taken by them and the patient uh, was just, um,
0: just unbelievable. Dr. Mather provides some details. My wife
1: uh, was uh, there basically every day, and uh, when she, when I was in the ICU, she basically slept there, and in, in the daytime went home. Uh, when I was in the ICU, it uh, was in the rehab center. She was there most of the daytime, and on the weekends, basically behaved as the physical therapist and occupational therapist, making me making me do all the work that the physical therapist and occupational therapist had done that week. My daughter had moved. She was living in Cincinnati. She was working for General Electric because at that time her job was calling uh, China and calling India for um, uh, General Electric's uh, engine parts. She was here through at least two or three months. She navigated a lot of the Insurance issues and all other uh, business things that needed to be worked uh, out. My son, at that time, was a dermatology resident, so a lot of the medical issues, um, basically, he uh, was uh, discussing with the whoever was the attending physician. Uh, but he all both of them both of my kids were also letting the rest of the family know what was going on because we had a we have a very huge family when i was in the pcu my goal was essentially one day to come back and round
0: on the pcut now at this point dr Madra was lucky to be alive his family had already put their own lives in hold for months to support him through his illness but eventually his sepsis cleared his ARDS resolved and the bleeding had stopped. He moved out of the ICU. By all accounts, he was doing better than anyone could expect, but no one could have prepared him for the aftermath.
1: When I came to it, I realized that I could not move my arms or legs against gravity uh, at all, and which which was really a complication of uh, critical care, myopathy and, and neuropathy, uh, which was because of the steroids and, uh, uh, and the, the uh, paral- paralytic agent. And then I went to an acute rehab uh, center uh, where uh, I was there for about 10 or 12 weeks. When I reached there I was not able to move my arms or legs uh, against gravity. When I left, I was able to walk uh, with a walker maybe a 100 feet or so. Uh, and then basically I you know transferred home. So this was from end to end of March till end of August that I finally got home. Before all of this happened, we, at least I just gave a lip service to physical therapy and occupational therapy. But having gone through an acute rehab, having to do three hours of therapy every day, uh, five days a week, which was the minimum requirement to be in an acute rehab, how hard the physical therapist and the occupational therapist worked with you was truly amazing, which, which I had really never. Realized because I would just before that I would just see them in the room. Yeah, they're working, but with, with the patient, but never realized actually what they're doing. And then also the the speech therapist and the speech therapist tried hard to change my accent, which never worked. From home, I went for outpatient rehab uh, three times a week. Uh, for a period of about nine to ten months, basically graduating from a walker uh, to a cane to be then able to walk on a flat surface and then walk on uneven surfaces. And then eventually uh, started gradually coming back to work which was starting like two days a week of purely outpatient
0: clinics. How long did it take you to get back to work?
1: Uh, about a year maybe 14-15 months and then talking with the exercise person there to just strengthen uh, muscles and improve my endurance and that part took about a year before I really felt that I was back to more or less normal so from the start to the end was almost two and a
0: half years Praveen Mather's life changed, but his illness changed more than his life.
2: Learning from Dr. Mather's experience, what we have done in the ICUs is that we have implemented the ABCD bundle, which includes awakening and breathing, choice of sedation, delirium assessment, and early mobility, because that is one of the things that has shown to improve physical outcomes in patients who, who may get physical therapy started early in the intensive care unit. When Dr. Mathur was admitted to the ICU, I was involved in studies to reduce delirium and to reduce sedation. What I never was putting much focus on, how the patients, after they survived the ICU, after delirium in the hospital, how it affects them once they get discharged from the hospital, or or overall, how an ICU survivor would go through the long recovery process in which stay in the ICU is a very small portion, if I have to say, probably
0: like 5% of the overall recovery process. Until then, I also thought of critical illness as having an acute resuscitation phase, followed by a recovery phase that would tend to last a few days, after which time the patient would be transferred out of the ICU, and their critical illness would end. In reality, the entire critical illness turns out to be the opening salvo, the first phase of a much longer battle, that's more akin to chronic disease like diabetes or dementia than to the acute phase of septic shock so familiar to providers.
2: So that was one of the things um, that we were thinking about that we should start a recovery process for ICU survivors once they come out of the ICU. And, and having um, seen Dr. Mather in the ICU basically kind of propelled us to think about it more actively and to tried to gather local resources to start uh, a recovery program. And, and I would say that his stay in the intensive care unit provided the inspiration for us to start the Critical Care Recovery Center in 2011, uh, which was the first outpatient clinic geared towards ICU survivor here at Indiana University and Eskenazi Hospital.
0: But an outpatient follow-up clinic for ICU patients, run by ICU doctors, was a novel idea that had never existed before. There was no script for what needs to be done, no data for outcome measures, no model for billing or staffing. Until Bob or Khan, there was not even an ICU doctor willing to come out of the fast-paced, adrenaline-filled wards of the intensive care unit, where split-second decisions result in immediate feedback and enter into the slow-paced world of managing chronic illness. But who better to navigate patients through the complexity of post-intensive care syndrome a condition so prevalent and so underrecognized that it would not even have a name until a year after Dr. Mather became ill. Then an intensive care doctor with a front row seat to its devastation.
2: In order to run a clinic that would provide um, services on such a broader level, you need you need a lot of personnel and space. And that means support from the health system. We were fortunate to have good relationship with the hospital administ- and hospital leadership who, who bought into the program and provide us the initial resources to start the clinic. The other thing that helped is we have a very active geriatrics division at Indiana University School of Medicine, and I was able to house the Critical Care Recovery Center within the Healthy Aging Brain Center at Eskenazi Health and utilized their nurses, social workers and their psychometricians who were experienced in dealing with the complexity associated with dementia and late life uh, elderly patients. Uh, So I was was able to use that resource and develop the clinic on the similar lines that some of these um, dementia and uh, geriatric clinics have been set up in the past. When they come to critical care recovery center on their first visit they get assessed uh, with a standardized battery focusing on cognition physical function and psychological outcomes including anxiety depression (coughs) post-traumatic stress disorder also medication reconciliation through a critical care pharmacist and um, and streamlining the appointments that the icu survivor has to go through after discharge Um, Once this initial assessment has taken place, the ICU survivor comes back to the clinic at the Critical Care Recovery Center two weeks after the initial appointment, in which we go over the results of all these tests in where the patient and their caregivers sit down with the Critical Care Recovery Team, and we would come up with a personalized recovery process, which involves home exercises, aggressive PT, OT follow-up, cognitive exercises, cognitive behavioral therapy, depression management, and medication reconciliation with active deprescribing prescribing of psychotropic so that there will be no adverse consequences of those drugs, and transitions of care support. So that is one aspect of the Critical Care Recovery Center. Um, now, learning from the Critical Care Recovery Center in the last few years, and again, with input from Dr. Mather, we have expanded the Critical Care Recovery Center to the community in the form of a mobile critical care recovery program where the care coordinator, who's a nurse, instead of helping the patients only when they come to the outpatient critical care recovery center, the nurse is going to the homes of the patients and doing these assessments at home and providing the recovery with the support of an interdisciplinary panel at the homes of the patient. And we have started the recovery process without the physical need of an ICU survivor to come to the clinic. The third thing that is under the works now is is try to provide some sort of telephysical recovery at homes of the patients. Setting up computers and provide them with an exercise coach through FaceTime or through a camera that can help them do exercises um, after their discharge from the rehabilitation places as well as their discharge from the ICU at least three times a week, one to two hours um, on, on those exercise sessions. So that is also one of the program that we have just started. Um, on top of that, uh, some of the other things including ICU diaries and uh, and bringing the ICU survivor back to the ICU so they can provide feedback to the nurses and the other uh, personnel in the intensive care unit and have also been started at some of our local ICUs. This would not have been possible without the feedback and input um, uh, from Dr. Mathur. or and it is unfortunate that he had to go through that experience, but, um, but somehow that has helped us building these programs and provide better recovery services for the other patients who are getting admitted to the ICUs on a daily basis.
0: Dr. Mather, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for sharing your story. I learned a lot from this and I hope the same for the clinicians, patients, and family members listening to this podcast.